Podcastle episode 209 for May 22nd, 2012. Lila the Werewolf by Peter S. Beagle. Rated R for violence, sex, language, whatever other actions might be synonymous with werewolves, really. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and for the next two weeks, we've got a little block of stories for you featuring man's best friend. Dogs. Kind of. Today, it's a werewolf story as only Peter S. Beagle could write it, and it was originally published in the 1970s. So yes, all you young whippersnappers, when the characters are talking about fantastical technologies like tape recorders and a brave new world where cell phones haven't yet been created... Now you know why. You know, as a kid who grew up in the 80s, when you say werewolf, I can't help thinking of that bastion of 80s cinema starring Michael J. Fox, Teen Wolf. Which, I have to admit, I remember almost as much for the Saturday morning cartoon it spawned. One thing about Teen Wolf the movie, however, one thing it did exceptionally well, aside from answering that age-old question of what if a supernatural creature could play basketball and play it for your team, was striking that certain chord of how weird high school is and how much of an outsider it makes you feel. And love? Oh man, love. As if high school wasn't hard enough already, you gotta factor in the hormones. Or maybe I have that backwards and should have said love is hard enough without trying to factor in high school. Anyway, today's story is not set in high school. It takes place a little bit after that in life. But it's got the hormones and alienation and love in spades. Podcastle's very proud to present Lila the Werewolf by Peter S. Beagle. Peter S. Beagle is the award-winning author of fantasy classics The Last Unicorn and A Fine and Private Place. He's won a Hugo, a Nebula, the Locus, and has been the recipient of the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award. He's been writing since the 60s, and he's got more projects in the works than I can list right now. His latest short fiction collection is The Excellent Sleight of Hand. Our debut episode here at Podcastle was written by him, Come Lady Death, and we've ran many of his other stories. Our reader this week is one of man's other best friends, or at least our audiences, Steve Anderson, who does freelance acting, voiceover work, storytelling, living history, and educational and interactive theater. You can find out more or even hire him for your own voice acting needs by clicking over to his brand new website about his voice and video work at sgacreative.com. Additionally, Steve would like to apologize to all the dog lovers in our audience, which is funny because I think that means he's apologizing to Anna. Okay, I like dogs too, mostly. So do a little dance, make a little love, Hop on the top of the Wolfmobile to do some handstands and enjoy the story. Lila the Werewolf by Peter S. Beagle Lila Braun had been living with Farrell for three weeks before he found out she was a werewolf. They had met at a party when the moon was a few nights past the full, and by the time it had withered to the shape of a lemon, Lila had moved her suitcase, her guitar, and her Ewan McCall records two blocks north and four blocks west to Farrell's apartment on 98th Street. Girls sometimes happened to Farrell like that. One evening, Lila wasn't in when Farrell came home from work at the bookstore. 
She had left a note on the table under a can of tuna fish. The note said that she had gone up to the Bronx to have dinner with her mother and would probably be spending the night there. The coleslaw in the refrigerator should be finished before it went bad. Farrell ate the tuna fish and gave the coleslaw to Grunwald. Grunwald was a half-grown Russian wolfhound the color of sour milk. He looked like a goat and had no outside interests except shoes. Farrell was taking care of him for a girl who was away in Europe for the summer. She sent Grunwald a tape recording of her voice every week. Farrell went to a movie with a friend and to the West End afterward for beer. Then he walked home alone under the full moon, which was red and yellow. He reheated the morning coffee, played a record, read through a week-old News of the Week in Review section of the Sunday Times, and finally took Grunewald up to the roof for the night, as he always did. The dog had been accustomed to sleep in the same bed with his mistress, and the point was not negotiable. Grunewald mooed and scrabbled and butted all the way, but Farrell pushed him out among the looming chimneys and ventilators and slammed the door. Then he came back downstairs and went to bed. He slept very badly. Grunewald's baying woke him twice, and there was something else that brought him half out of bed, thirsty and lonely, with his sinuses full and the night swaying like a curtain as the figures of his dream scurried off stage. Grunewald seemed to have gone off the air. Perhaps it was the silence that had awakened him. Whatever the reason, he never really got back to sleep. He was lying on his back, watching a chair with his clothes on it becoming a chair again, when the wolf came in through the open window. It landed lightly in the middle of the room and stood there for a moment, breathing quickly with its ears back. There was blood on the wolf's teeth and tongue and blood on its chest. Farrell, whose true gift was for acceptance, especially in the morning, accepted the idea that there was a wolf in his bedroom, and lay quite still, closing his eyes as the grim, black-lipped head swung towards him. Having once worked at a zoo, he was able to recognize the beast as a Central European subspecies, smaller and lighter-boned than the northern timber wolf variety lacking the thick, roughy mane at the shoulders and having a more pointed nose and ears. His own pedantry always delighted him, even at the worst moments. Blunt claws clicking on the linoleum, then silent on the throw rug by the bed. Something warm and slow splashed down on his shoulder, but he never moved. The wild smell of the wolf was over him, and that did frighten him at last. To be in the same room with that smell and the mirror prints on the walls. Then he felt the sunlight on his eyelids, and at the same moment he heard the wolf moan softly and deeply. The sound was not repeated, but the breath on his face was suddenly sweet and smoky, dizzyingly familiar after the other. He opened his eyes and saw Lila. She was sitting naked on the edge of the bed, smiling, with her hair down. Hello, baby, she said. Move over, baby. I came home. Farrell's gift was for acceptance. He was perfectly willing to believe that he had dreamed the wolf, to believe Lila's story of boiled chicken and bitter arguments and sleeplessness on Tremont Avenue. 
and to forget that her first caress had been to bite him on the shoulder, hard enough so that the blood crusting there as he got up and made breakfast might very well be his own. But then he left the coffee perking and went up to the roof to get Grunwald. He found the dog sprawled in a grove of TV antennas, looking more like a goat than ever, with his throat torn out. Farrell had never actually seen an animal with its throat torn out. The coffee pot was still chuckling when he came back into the apartment, which struck him as very odd. You could have either werewolves or Pyrex nine-cup percolators in the world, but not both, surely. He told Lila, watching her face. She was a small girl, not really pretty, but with good eyes and a lovely mouth, and with a curious, sullen gracefulness that had been the first thing to speak to Farrell at the party. When he told her how Grunwald had looked, she shivered all over, once. Oh, she said, wrinkling her lips back from her neat white teeth. Oh, baby, how awful. Poor Grunwald. Oh, poor Barbara. Barbara was Grunwald's owner. Yeah, Farrell said. Poor Barbara, making her little tapes in Saint-Tropez. He could not look away from Lila's face. She said, Wild dogs. Not really wild, I mean, but with owners. You hear about it sometimes, how a pack of them get together and attack children and things, running through the streets. Then they go home and eat their dog yummies. The scary thing is that they probably live right around here. Everybody on the block seems to have a dog. God, that's scary. Poor Grunwald. They didn't tear him up much, Farrell said. It must have been just for the fun of it. And the blood. I didn't know dogs killed for the blood. He didn't have any blood left. The tip of Lila's tongue appeared between her lips in the unknowing reflex of a fondled cat. As evidence, it wouldn't have stood up even in old Salem. But Farrell knew the truth then, beyond laziness or rationalization, and went on buttering toast for Lila. Farrell had nothing against werewolves, and he had never liked Grunwald. He told his friend Ben Kasoy about Lila when they met in the automat for lunch. He had to shout it over the clicking and rattling all around them, but the people sitting six inches away on either hand never looked up. New Yorkers never eavesdrop. They hear only what they simply cannot help hearing. Ben said, I told you about Bronx girls. You better come stay at my place for a few days. Farrell shook his head. No, that's silly. I mean, it's only Lila. If she were going to hurt me, she could have done it last night. Besides, it won't happen again for a month. There has to be a full moon. His friend stared at him. So what? What's that got to do with anything? You gonna go on home as though nothing had happened? Not as though nothing had happened, Farrell said lamely. The thing is, it's still only Lila, not Lon Chaney or somebody. Look, she goes to her psychiatrist three afternoons a week, and she's got her guitar lesson one night a week, and her pottery class one night, and she cooks eggplant maybe twice a week. She calls her mother every Friday night, and one night a month she turns into a wolf. You see what I'm getting at? It's still Lila, whatever she does, and I just can't get terribly shook up about it. 
A little bit, sure, because what the hell? But I don't know. Anyway, there's no mad rush about it. I'll talk to her when the thing comes up in conversation, just naturally. It's okay. Ben said, God damn, you see why nobody has any respect for liberals anymore? Farrell, I know you. You're just scared of hurting her feelings. Well, it's that too, Farrell agreed, a little embarrassed. I hate confrontations. If I break up with her now, she'll think I'm doing it because she's a werewolf. It's awkward. It feels nasty and middle class. I should have broken up with her the first time I met her mother. Or the second time she served the eggplant. Oh, her mother. Boy, there's the real werewolf. There's somebody I'd wear wolfsbane against, that woman. <sighs> Damn, I wish I hadn't found out. I don't think I've ever found out anything about people that I was the better for knowing. Ben walked all the way back to the bookstore with him, arguing. It touched Farrell, because Ben hated to walk. Before they parted, Ben suggested, At least you could try some of that stuff you were talking about, the wolfsbane. And there's garlic, too. You put some in a little bag and wear it around your neck. Don't laugh, man. If there's such a thing as werewolves, the other stuff must be real, too. Cold iron, silver, oak, running water... I'm not laughing at you, Farrell said, but he was still grinning. Lila's shrink says she has a rejection thing, very deep-seated, take us years to break through all that scar tissue. Now if I start walking around wearing amulets and mumbling in Latin every time she looks at me, who knows how far it'll set her back. Listen, I've done some things I'm not proud of, but I don't want to mess with anyone's analysis. That's the sin against God. He sighed and slapped Ben lightly on the arm. Don't worry about it. We'll work it out. I'll talk to her. But between that night and the next full moon, he found no good, casual way of bringing the subject up. Admittedly, he did not try as hard as he might have. It was true that he feared confrontations more than he feared werewolves. And he would have found it almost as difficult to talk to Lila about her guitar playing or her pots or the political arguments she got into at parties. The thing is, he said to Ben, it's sort of one more little weakness not to take advantage of, in a way. They made love often that month. The smell of Lila flowered in the bedroom where the smell of the wolf still lingered almost visibly. And both of them were wild, heavy zoo smells, warm and raw and fearful, the sweeter for being savage. Farrell held Lila in his arms and knew what she was, and he was always frightened. But he would not have let her go if she had turned into a wolf again as he held her. It was a relief to peer at her while she slept and see how stubby and childish her fingernails were, or that the skin around her mouth was rashy because she had been snacking on chocolate. She loved secret sweets, but they always betrayed her. It's only Lila, after all, he would think as he drowsed off. Her mother used to hide the candy, but Lila always found it. Now she's a big girl, neither married nor in graduate school, but living in sin with an Irish musician, and she can have all the candy she wants. What kind of werewolf is that? Poor Lila practicing who killed Davy Moore, why did he die? The note said that she would be working late at the magazine on layout and might have to be there all night. 
Farrell put on about four feet of Telamon laced with Jango Reinhardt, took down the golden bough, and settled into a chair by the window. The moon shone in at him, bright and thin and sharp as the lid of a tin can, and it did not seem to move at all as he dozed and woke. Lila's mother called several times during the night, which was interesting. Lila still picked up her mail and most messages at her old apartment, and her two roommates covered for her when necessary. But Farrell was absolutely certain that her mother knew she was living with him. Farrell was an expert on mothers. Mrs. Braun called him Joe each time she called, and that made him wonder, for he knew she hated him. Does she suspect that we share a secret? Oh, poor Lila. The last time the telephone woke him, it was still dark in the room, but the traffic lights no longer glittered through rings of mist, and the cars made a different sound on the warming pavement. A man was saying clearly in the street, Well, I'd shoot him. I'd shoot him. Farrell let the telephone ring ten times before he picked it up. Let me talk to Lila, Mrs. Braun said. She isn't here. What if the sun catches her? What if she turns back to herself in front of a cop or a bus driver or a couple of nuns going to early mass? Lila isn't here, Mrs. Braun. I have reason to believe that's not true. The fretful, muscular voice had dropped all pretense of warmth. I want to talk to Lila. Farrell was suddenly dry-mouthed and shivering with fury. It was her choice of words that did it. Well, I have reason to believe you're a suffocating old bitch and a bourgeois Stalinist. How do you like them apples, Mrs. B? As though his anger had summoned her, the wolf was standing two feet away from him. Her coat was dark and lank with sweat, and yellow saliva was mixed with the blood that strung from her jaws. She looked at Farrell and growled far away in her throat. Just a minute, he said. He covered the receiver with his palm. It's for you, he said to the wolf. It's your mother. The wolf made a pitiful sound, almost inaudible, and scuffed at the floor. She was plainly exhausted. Mrs. Braun pinged in Farrell's ear like a bug against a lighted window. What? What? Hello, what is this? Listen, you put Lila on the phone right now. Hello? I want to talk to Lila. I know she's there. Farrell hung up just as the sun touched a corner of the window. The wolf became Lila. As before, she only made one sound. The phone rang again, and she picked it up without a glance at Farrell. Bernice? Lila always called her mother by her first name. Yes. No, no. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm all right. I just forgot to call. No, I'm all right. Will you listen? Bernice, there's no law that says you have to get hysterical. Yes, you are. She dropped down on the bed, groping under her pillow for cigarettes. Farrell got up and began to make coffee. Well, there was a little trouble, Lila was saying. See, I went to the zoo because I couldn't find... Bernice, I know, I know. But that was, what, three months ago? Uh, the thing is, I didn't think they'd have their horns so soon. Uh, Bernice, I had to, that's all. There'd only been a couple of cats, and I... Well, sure, they chased me, but I... Well, Mama, Bernice, what did you want me to do? Just what did you want me to do? You're always so dramatic. Why do I shout? I shout because I can't get you to listen to me any other way. You remember what Dr. Schechtman said. What? No, 
I told you. I just forgot to call. No, that is the reason. That's the real and only reason. Well, whose fault is that? What? Oh, Bernice. Jesus Christ, Bernice. All right. How is it Dad's fault? She didn't want the coffee or any breakfast, but she sat at the table in his bathrobe and drank milk greedily. It was the first time he had ever seen her drink milk. Her face was sandy pale, and her eyes were red. Talking to her mother left her looking as though she had actually gone ten rounds with the woman. Farrell asked, "'How long has it been happening?' Nine years,' Lila said, "'since I hit puberty. First day, cramps. The second day, this. My introduction to womanhood.' She snickered and spilled her milk. "'I want some more,' she said. "'Got to get rid of that taste.' "'Who knows about it?' he asked. "'Pat and Janet?' "'They were the two girls she had been rooming with. "'God, no, I never tell them. "'I've never told a girl. "'Bernice knows, of course, and Dr. Schechtman. "'He's my head doctor. "'And you now, that's all.' Farrell waited. "'She was a bad liar, "'and only did it to heighten the effect of the truth. "'Well, there was Mickey,' she said. "'The guy I told you about the first night, you remember?' It doesn't matter. He's an acid head in Vancouver, of all places. He'll never tell anybody. He thought, I wonder if any girl has ever talked about me in that sort of voice. I doubt it offhand. Lila said, It wasn't too hard to keep it a secret. I missed a lot of things. Like, I never could go to the riding camp, and I still want to. And the senior play, when I was in high school, they picked me to play the girl in Lilium. But then they changed the evening, and I had to say I was sick. And the winter's bad because the sun sets so early. But actually, it's been a lot less trouble than my goddamn allergies. She made a laugh, but Farrell did not respond. Dr. Schechtman says it's a sex thing, she offered. He says it'll take years and years to cure it. Bernice thinks I should go to someone else, but I don't want to be one of those women who runs around changing shrinks like hair colors. Pat went through five of them in a month one time. Joe, I wish you'd say something. Or just go away. Is it only dogs, he asked. Lila's face did not change, but her chair rattled and the milk went over again. Farrell said, answer me. Do you only kill dogs and cats and zoo animals? The tears began to come, heavy and slow, bright as knives in the morning sunlight. She could not look at him, and when she tried to speak, she could only make creaking, cartilaginous sounds in her throat. You don't know, she whispered at last. You don't have any idea what it's like. That's true, he answered. He was always very fair about that particular point. He took her hand, and then she really began to cry. Her sobs were horrible to hear, much more frightening to Farrell than any wolf noises. When he held her, she rolled in his arms like a stranded ship with the waves slamming into her. I always get the criers, he thought sadly. My girls always cry sooner or later, but never for me. 
Don't leave me, she wept. I don't know why I came to live with you. I knew it wouldn't work, but don't leave me. There's just Bernice and Dr. Schechtman, and it's so lonely. I want somebody else. I get so lonely. Don't leave me, Joe. I love you, Joe. I love you. She was patting his face as though she were blind. Farrell stroked her hair and kneaded the back of her neck, wishing that her mother would call again. He felt still and weary and without desire. I'm doing it again, he thought. I love you, Lila said, and he answered her, thinking, I'm doing it again. That's the great advantage of making the same mistake a lot of times. You come to know it, and you can study it and get inside it, really make it yours. It's the same good old mistake, except this time the girl's hang-up is different. But it's the same thing. I'm doing it again. The building superintendent was thirty or fifty, dark, thin, quick, and shivering. A Lithuanian or a Latvian, he spoke very little English. He smelled of black friction tape and stale water, and he was strong in the twisting way that a small, lean animal is strong. His eyes were almost purple, and they bulged a little, straining out, the terrible eyes of a herald angel stricken dumb. He roamed the basement all day, banging on pipes and taking the elevator apart. The superintendent met Lila only a few hours after Farrell did, on that first night when she came home with him. At the sight of her, the little man jumped back, dropping the two-legged chair he was carrying. He promptly fell over it and did not try to get up, but cowered there, clucking and gulping, trying to cross himself and make the sign of the horns at the same time. Farrell started to help him, but he screamed. They could hardly hear the sound. It would have been merely funny and embarrassing, except for the fact that Lila was equally frightened of the superintendent from that moment. She would not go down to the basement for any reason, nor would she enter or leave the house until she was satisfied that he was nowhere near. Farrell had thought then that she took the superintendent for a lunatic. "'I don't know how he knows,' he said to Ben. "'I guess if you believe in werewolves and vampires, you probably recognize them right away. I don't believe in them at all, and I live with one.' He lived with Lila all through the autumn and the winter. They went out together and came home, and her cooking improved slightly, and she gave up the guitar and got a kitten named Theodora. Sometimes she wept, but not often. She turned out not to be a real crier. She told Dr. Schechtman about Farrell, and he said that it would probably be a very beneficial relationship for her. It wasn't, but it wasn't a particularly bad one either. Their lovemaking was usually good, though it bothered Farrell to suspect that it was the sense and smell of the other that excited him. For the rest, they came near being friends. Farrell had known that he did not love Lila before he found out that she was a werewolf, and this made him feel a great deal easier about being bored with her. It'll break up by itself in the spring, he said, like ice. Ben asked, what if it doesn't? They were having lunch in the automat again. What'll you do if it just goes on? It's not that easy. Farrell looked away from his friend and began to explore the mysterious, swampy innards of his beef pie. He said, The trouble is that I know her. That was the real mistake. You shouldn't get to know people if you know you're not going to stay with them one way or another. It's all right if you come and go in ignorance, but you shouldn't know them. 
A week or so before the full moon, she would start to become nervous and strident, and this would continue until the day preceding her transformation. On that day, she was invariably loving in the tender, desperate manner of someone who was going away. But the next day would see her silent, speaking only when she had to. She always had a cold on the last day and looked gray and patchy and sick, but she usually went to work anyway. Farrell was sure, though she never talked about it, that the change into wolf shape was actually peaceful for her, though the returning hurt. Just before moonrise, she would take off her clothes and take the pins out of her hair and stand, waiting. Farrell never managed not to close his eyes when she dropped heavily down on all fours. But there was a moment before that when her face would grow a look that he never saw at any other time except when they were making love. Each time he saw it, it struck him as a look of wondrous joy at not being Lila anymore. See, I know her, he tried to explain to Ben. She only likes to go to color movies because wolves can't see color. She can't stand the modern jazz quartet, but that's all she plays the first couple of days afterwards. Stupid things like that. Never gets high at parties because she's afraid she'll start talking. It's hard to walk away, that's all, taking what I know with me. Ben asked, is she still scared of the super? Oh, God, Farrell said. She got his dog last time. It was a Dalmatian, good-looking animal. She didn't know it was his. He doesn't hide when he sees her now. He just gives her a look like a stake through the heart. That man is a really classy hater, a natural. I'm scared of him myself. He stood up and began to pull on his overcoat. I wish he'd get turned on to her mother, get some practical use out of him. Did I tell you she wants me to call her Bernice? Ben said, Farrell, if I were you, I'd leave the country. I would. They went out into the February drizzle that sniffled back and forth between snow and rain. Farrell did not speak until they reached the corner where he turned towards the bookstore. Then he said very softly, Damn, you have to be so careful. Who wants to know what people turn into? May came, and a night when Lila once again stood naked at the window, waiting for the moon. Farrell fussed with dishes and garbage bags and fed the cat. These moments were always awkward. He had just asked her, You want to save what's left of the rice? when the telephone rang. It was Lila's mother. She called two and three times a week now. This is Bernice. How's my Irisher this evening? I'm fine, Bernice, Farrell said. Lila suddenly threw back her head and drew a heavy, whining breath. The cat hissed silently and ran into the bathroom. I called to inveigle you two uptown this Friday, Mrs. Braun said. A couple of old friends are coming over, and I know if I don't get some young people in, we'll just sit around and talk about what went wrong with the progressive party, the old left. So if you could sort of sweet-talk our girl into spending an evening in Squaresville, I'll have to check with Lila. She's doing it, he thought. The terrible woman. Every time I talk to her, I sound married. I see what she's doing, but she goes right ahead anyway. He said, I'll talk to her in the morning. Lila struggled in the moonlight between dancing and drowning. Oh, Mrs. Braun said, yes, of course, have her call me back. 
she sighed. It's such a comfort to me to know you're there. Ask her if I should fix a fondue. Lila made a handsome wolf, tall and broad-chested for a female, moving as easily as water sliding over stone. Her coat was dark brown, showing red in the proper light, and there were white places on her breast. She had pale green eyes, the color of the sky when a hurricane is coming. Usually she was gone as soon as the changing was over, for she never cared for him to see her in her wolf form. But tonight she came slowly towards him, walking in a strange way, with her hindquarters almost dragging. She was making a high, soft sound, and her eyes were not focusing on him. "'What is it?' he asked foolishly. The wolf whined and skulked under the table, rubbing against his leg. Then she lay on her belly and rolled, and as she did so, the sound grew in her throat until it became an odd, sad, thin cry. Not a hunting howl, but a shiver of longing turned into breath. "'Jesus, don't do that!' Farrell gasped. But she sat up and howled again, and a dog answered her from somewhere near the river. She wagged her tail and whimpered. Farrell said, "'The super'll be up here in two minutes flat. What's the matter with you?' He heard footsteps and low, frightened voices in the apartment above them. Another dog howled, this one nearby, and the wolf wriggled a little way towards the window on her haunches like a baby scooting. She looked at him over her shoulder, shuddering violently. On an impulse, he picked up the phone and called her mother. Watching the wolf as she rocked, and slithered and moaned, he described her actions to Mrs. Braun. I've never seen her like this, he said. I don't know what's the matter with her. Oh, my God, Mrs. Braun whispered. She told him. When he was silent, she began to speak very rapidly. It hasn't happened for such a long time. Schechtman gives her pills, but she must have run out and forgotten. She's always been like that since she was little. All the thermos bottles she used to leave on the school bus, and every week her piano music. I wish you'd told me before, he said. He was edging very cautiously towards the open window. The pupils of the wolf's eyes were pulsing with her quick breaths. It isn't a thing you tell people, Lila's mother wailed in his ear. How do you think it was for me when she brought her first little boyfriend? Farrell dropped the phone and sprang for the window. He had the inside track, and he might have made it. But she turned her head and snarled so wildly that he fell back. When he reached the window, she was already two fire escape landings below, and there was eager yelping waiting for her in the street. Dangling and turning just above the floor, Mrs. Braun heard Farrell's distant yell, followed immediately by a heavy thumping on the door. A strange, tattered voice was shouting unintelligibly beyond the knocking. Footsteps crashed by the receiver, and the door opened. "'My dog! My dog!' the strange voice mourned. "'My dog! My dog! My dog!' "'I'm sorry about your dog,' Farrell said. "'Look, please, go away. I've got work to do.' I got work, the voice said. I know my work. It climbed and spilled into another language, out of which English words jutted like broken bones. Where is she? Where is she? She killed my dog. She's not here. Farrell's own voice changed on the last word. It seemed a long time before he said, You'd better put that away. 
Mrs. Braun heard the howl as clearly as though the wolf were running beneath her own window, lonely and insatiable with a kind of gasping laughter in it. The other voice began to scream. Mrs. Braun caught the phrase silver bullet several times. The door slammed, then opened and slammed again. Farrell was the only man of his own acquaintance who was able to play back his dreams while he was having them, to stop them in mid-flight, no matter how fearful they might be, or how lovely, and run them over and over, studying them in his sleep, until the most terrifying reel became at once utterly harmless and unbearably familiar. This night that he spent running after Lila was like that. He would find them congregated under the marquee of an apartment house or romping round the moonscape of a construction site, ten or fifteen males of all races, creeds, colors, and previous conditions of servitude, whining and yapping, pissing against tires, inhaling indiscriminately each other and the lean, grinning bitch they surrounded. She frightened them, for she growled more wickedly than coyness demanded, and where she snapped, even in play, bone showed. Still they tumbled on her and over her, biting her neck and ears in their turn, and she snarled, but she did not run away. Never, at least, until Farrell came charging upon them, shrieking like any cuckold, kicking at the snuffling lovers. Then she would turn and race off into the spring dark, with her thin, dreamy howl floating behind her like the train of a smoky gown. The dogs followed, and so did Farrell, calling and cursing. They always lost him quickly, that jubilant marriage procession, leaving him stumbling down rusty iron ladders into places where he fell over garbage cans. Yet he would come upon them as inevitably in time, loping along Broadway or trotting across Columbus Avenue towards the park. He would hear them in the tennis courts near the river, breaking down the nets over Lila and her moment's Aries. There were dozens of them now, coming from all directions. They stank of their joy, and he threw stones at them and shouted, and they ran." and the wolf ran at their head on sidewalks and on wet grass, her tail waving contentedly, but her eyes still hungry, and her howl growing ever more warning than wistful. Farrell knew that she must have blood before sunrise, and that it was both useless and dangerous to follow her. But the night wound and unwound itself, and he knew the same things over and over, and ran down the same streets, and saw the same couples walk wide of him, thinking he was drunk. Mrs. Braun kept leaping out of a taxi that pulled up next to him, usually at corners where the dogs had just piled by, knocking over the crates stacked in market doorways, and spilling the newspapers at the subway kiosks. Standing in broccoli in black taffeta, with a front like a ferry boat, yet as lean in the hips as her wolf daughter, with her plum-colored hair all loose, one arm lifted, and her orange mouth pursed in a bellow, she was no longer Bernice, but a wronged fertility goddess, getting set to blast the harvest. "'We've got to split up!' she would roar at Farrell, and each time it sounded like a sound idea." Yet he looked for her whenever he lost Lila's trail, because she never did. 
the superintendent kept turning up too, darting after Farrell out of alleys or cellar entrances or popping from the freight elevators that load through the sidewalk. Farrell would hear his numberless pass keys clicking on the flat piece of wood tucked into his belt. You see her? You see her? The wolf killed my dog! Under the fat, ugly moon, the Army 45 glittered and trembled like his own mad eyes. Mark with a cross! He would pat the barrel of his gun and shake it under Farrell's nose like a maraca. Mark with a cross, blessed by a priest, three silver bullets, she killed my dog! Lila's voice would come sailing to them then, from up in Harlem or away near Lincoln Center and the little man would whirl and dash down into the earth, disappearing into the crack between two slabs of sidewalk. Farrell understood quite clearly that the superintendent was hunting Lila underground, using the keys that only superintendents have to take elevators down to the black sub-sub-basements, far below the bicycle rooms and the wet, shaking laundry rooms and below the furnace rooms, below the passages walled with electricity meters and roofed with burly steam pipes, down to the realms where the great dim water mains roll like whales and the gas lines hump and preen, down where the roots of the apartment houses fade together, and so along under the city, scrabbling through secret ways with silver bullets and his keys rapping against the piece of wood. He never saw Lila, but he was never very far behind her. Cutting across parking lots, pole vaulting between locked bumpers, edging and dancing his way through fluorescent gaggles of haughty children, leaping uptown like a salmon against the current of the theater crowds, walking quickly past the random killing faces that floated down the night tide like unexploded mines, and especially avoiding the crazy faces that wanted to tell him what it was like to be crazy. So Farrell pursued Lila Braun of Tremont Avenue and CCNY in the city all night long. Nobody offered to help him or tried to head off the dangerous-looking bitch bounding along with the delirious gaggle of admirers streaming after her. But then the dogs had to fight through the same clenched legs and vengeful bodies that Farrell did. The crowds slowed Lila down, but he felt relieved whenever she turned towards the emptier streets. She must have blood soon, somewhere. Farrell's dreams eventually lost their clear edge after he played them back a certain number of times, and so it was with the night. The full moon skidded down the sky, thinning like a tatter of butter in a skillet, and remembered scenes began to fold sloppily into each other. The sound of Lila and the dogs grew fainter whichever way he followed. Mrs. Braun blinked on and off at longer intervals, and in dark doorways and under subway gratings, the superintendent burned like a corpuscent, making the barrel of his pistol run rainbow. At last he lost Lila for good, and with that it seemed that he woke. It was still night, but not dark, and he was walking slowly home on Riverside Drive through a cool, grainy fog. The moon had set, but the river was strangely bright, glittering gray as far up as the bridge where headlights left shiny, wet paths like snails. There was no one else on the street. Dumb broad, he said aloud. The hell with it. She wants to mess around, let her mess around. 
He wondered whether werewolves could have cubs, and what sort of cubs they might be. Lila must have turned on the dogs by now for the blood. Poor dogs, he thought. They were all so dirty and innocent and happy with her. A moral lesson for all of us, he announced sententiously. Don't fool with strange, eager ladies. They'll kill you. He was a little hysterical. Then, two blocks ahead of him, he saw the gaunt shape in the gray light of the river, alone now and hurrying. Farrell did not call to her, but as soon as he began to run, the wolf wheeled and faced him. Even at that distance, her eyes were stained and streaked and wild. She showed all the teeth on one side of her mouth, and she growled like fire. Farrell trotted steadily towards her, crying, "'Go home! Go home! Lila, you dummy, get on home! It's morning!' She growled terribly, but when Farrell was less than a block away, she turned again and dashed across the street, heading for West End Avenue. Farrell said, "'Good girl, that's it!' and limped after her. In the hours before sunrise on West End Avenue, many people came out to walk their dogs. Farrell had done it often enough with poor Grunwald to know many of the dawn walkers by sight, and some to talk to. A fair number of them were whores and homosexuals, both of whom always seemed to have dogs in New York. Quietly, almost always alone, they drifted up and down the nineties, piloted by their small, fussy beasts, but moving in a kind of fugitive truce with the city and the night that was ending. Farrell sometimes fancied that they were all asleep, and that this hour was the only true rest they ever got. He recognized Robbie by his two dogs, Scone and Crumpet. Robbie lived in the apartment directly below Farrell's, usually unhappily. The dogs were horrifying little homebrews of Chihuahua and Yorkshire Terrier, but Robbie loved them. Crumpet, the male, saw Lila first. He gave a delighted yap of welcome and proposition. According to Robbie, Scone bored him, and he liked big girls anyway, and sprang to meet her, yanking his leash through Robbie's slack hand. The wolf was almost upon him before he realized his fatal misunderstanding and scuttled desperately in retreat, meowing with utter terror. Robbie wailed, and Farrell ran as fast as he could, but Lila knocked Crumpet off his feet and slashed his throat while he was still in the air. Then she crouched on the body, nuzzling it in a dreadful way. Robbie actually came within a step of leaping upon Lila and trying to drag her away from his dead dog. Instead, he turned on Farrell as he came panting up and began hitting him with a good deal of strength and accuracy. Damn you! Damn you! he sobbed. Little Scone ran away around the corner, screaming like a mandrake. Farrell put up his arms and went with the punches, all the while yelling at Lila until his voice ripped. But the blood frenzy had her, and Farrell never imagined what she must be like at those times. Somehow she had spared the dogs who had loved her all night, but she was nothing but thirst now. She pushed and kneaded Crumpet's body as though she were nursing. All along the avenue, the morning dogs were barking like trumpets. Farrell ducked away from Robbie's soft fists and saw them coming, tripping over their trailing leashes, running too fast for their stubby legs. 
They were small, spoiled beasts, most of them, overweight and short-winded, and many were not young. Their owners cried unmanly pet names after them, but they waddled gallantly towards their deaths, barking promises far bigger than themselves, and none of them looked back. She looked up with her muzzle red to the eyes. The dogs did falter then, for they knew murder when they smelled it, and even their silly, near-sighted eyes understood vaguely what creature faced them. But they knew the smell of love, too, and they were all gentlemen. She killed the first two to reach her, a spitz and a cocker spaniel, with two snaps of her jaws. But before she could settle down to her meal, three peaks were scrambling up to her, though they would have had to stand on each other's shoulders. Lila whirled without a sound, and they fell away, rolling and yelling, but unhurt. As soon as she turned, the peaks were at her again, joined now by a couple of valiant poodles. Lila got one of the poodles when she turned again. Robbie had stopped beating on Farrell and was leaning against a traffic light, being sick. But other people were running up now. A middle-aged black man crying, a plump youth in a plastic car coat and bedroom slippers who kept whimpering, Oh God, she's eating them! Look at her, she's really eating them! Two lean, ageless girls in slacks, both with foamy beige hair. They all called wildly to their unheeding dogs, and they all grabbed at Farrell and shouted in his face. Cars began to stop. The sky was thin and cool, rising pale gold, but Lila paid no attention to it. She was ramping under the swarm of little dogs, rearing and spinning in circles, snarling blood. The dogs were terrified and bewildered, but they never swerved from their labor. The smell of love told them that they were welcome, however ungraciously she seemed to receive them. Lila shook herself, and a pair of squealing dachshunds, hobbled in a double harness, tumbled across the sidewalk to end at Farrell's feet. They scrambled up and immediately towed themselves back into the maelstrom. Lila bit one of them almost in half, but the other dachshund went on trying to climb her hindquarters, dragging his ripped comrade with him. Farrell began to laugh. The black man said, You think it's funny? and hit him. Farrell sat down, still laughing. The man stood over him, embarrassed, offering Farrell his handkerchief. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, he said. But your dog killed my dog. She isn't my dog, Farrell said. He moved to let a man pass between them, and then saw that it was the superintendent holding his pistol with both hands. Nobody noticed him until he fired, but Farrell pushed one of the foamy-haired girls, and she stumbled against the superintendent as the gun went off. The silver bullet broke a window in a parked car. The superintendent fired again, while the echoes of the first shot were still clapping back and forth between the houses. A Pomeranian screamed that time and a woman cried out, "'Oh, my God, he shot Borgie!' But the crowd was crumbling away, breaking into its individual components like pills on television. The watching cars had sped off at the sight of the gun, and the faces that had been peering down from windows disappeared. Except for Farrell, the few people who remained were scattered halfway down the block. The sky was brightening swiftly now. 
for God's sake, don't let him. The same woman called from the shelter of a doorway. But two men made shushing gestures at her, saying, It's all right, he knows how to use that thing. Go ahead, buddy. The shots had at last frightened the little dogs away from Lila. She crouched among the twitching splotches of fur, with her muzzle wrinkled back and her eyes more black than green. Farrell saw a plaid rag that had been a dog jacket protruding from under her body. The superintendent stooped and squinted over the gun barrel, aiming with grotesque care, while the men cried to him to shoot. He was too far from the werewolf for her to reach him before he fired the last silver bullet, though he would surely die before she died. His lips were moving as he took aim. Two long steps would have brought Farrell up behind the superintendent. Later, he told himself that he had been afraid of the pistol, because that was easier than remembering how he had felt when he looked at Lila. Her tongue never stopped lapping around her dark jaws, and even as she set herself to spring, she lifted a bloody paw to her mouth. Farrell thought of her padding in the bedroom, breathing on his face. The superintendent grunted, and Farrell closed his eyes. Yet even then he expected to find himself doing something. Then he heard Mrs. Braun's unmistakable voice, "'Don't you dare!' She was standing between Lila and the superintendent, one shoe gone and the heel off the other one, her knit dress torn at the shoulder, and her face tired and smudgy. But she pointed a finger at the startled superintendent, and he stepped quickly back, as though she had a pistol too. "'Lady, that's a wolf!' he protested nervously. "'Lady, you please get, get out of the way! That's a wolf! I go shoot her now!' "'I want to see your license for that gun!' Mrs. Braun held out her hand. The superintendent blinked at her, muttering in despair. She said, "'Do you know that you can be sent to prison for twenty years for carrying a concealed weapon in this state? Do you know what the fine is for having a gun without a license? The fine is five thousand dollars!' The men down the street were shouting at her, but she swung around to face the creature snarling among the little dead dogs. "'Come on, Lila,' she said. "'Come on home with Bernice. I'll make tea and we'll talk.' It's been a long time since we've really talked, you know. We used to have nice long talks when you were little, but we don't any more. The wolf had stopped growling, but she was crouching even lower, and her ears were still flat against her head. Mrs. Braun said, Come on, baby. Listen, I know what. You'll call in sick at the office and stay for a few days. You'll get a good rest, and maybe we'll even look around a little for a new doctor. What do you say? Shackman hasn't done a thing for you. I never liked him. Come on home, honey. Mama's here. Bernice knows. She took a step towards the silent wolf, holding out her hand. The superintendent gave a desperate, wordless cry and pumped forward, clumsily shoving Mrs. Braun to one side. He leveled the pistol point-blank, wailing, My dog! My dog! Lila was in the air when the gun went off and her shadow sprang after her, for the sun had risen. She crumpled down across a couple of dead peaks. Their blood dabbled her breasts and her pale throat. Mrs. Braun screamed like a lunch whistle. She knocked the superintendent into the street and sprawled over Lila, hiding her completely from Farrell's sight. 
Lila, Lila, she keens to her daughter. Poor baby, you never had a chance. He killed you because you were different, the way they kill everything different. Farrell approached her and stooped down, but she pushed him against a wall without looking up. Lila, Lila, poor baby, poor darling, maybe it's better, maybe you're happy now. You never had a chance, poor Lila. The dog owners were edging slowly back, and the surviving dogs were running to them. The superintendent squatted on the curb with his head in his arms. A wary, muffled voice said, "'For God's sake, Bernice, will you get up off me? You don't have to stop yelling, just get off.' When she stood up, the cars began to stop in the street again. It made it very difficult for the police to get through, nobody pressed charges, because there was no one to lodge them against. The killer dog, or wolf as some insisted, was gone, and if she had an owner, he could not be found. As for the people who had actually seen the wolf turn into a young girl when the sunlight touched her, most of them managed not to have seen it, though they never really forgot. There were a few who knew quite well what they had seen and never forgot it either, but they never said anything. They did, however, chip in to pay the superintendent's fine for possessing an unlicensed handgun. Farrell gave what he could. Lila vanished out of Farrell's life before sunset. She did not go uptown with her mother, but packed her things and went to stay with friends in the village. Later, he heard that she was living on Christopher Street, and later still that she had moved to Berkeley and gone back to school. He never saw her again. It had to be like that, he told Ben once. We got to know too much about each other. See, there's another side to knowing. She couldn't look at me. You mean because you saw her with all those dogs? Or because she knew that you'd have let that little nut shoot her? Farrell shook his head. It was that, I guess. But it was more something else, something I know. When she sprang, just as he shot at her that last time... She wasn't leaping at him. She was going straight for her mother. She'd have got her, too, if it hadn't been sunrise. Ben whistled softly. I wonder if her old lady knows. Bernice knows everything about Lila, Farrell said. Mrs. Braun called him nearly two years later to tell him that Lila was getting married. It must have cost her a good deal of money and ingenuity to find him. Where Farrell was living then, the telephone line was open for four hours a day. But he knew by the spitefulness in the static that she considered it money well spent. "'He's at Stanford,' she crackled. "'A research psychologist. They're going to Japan for their honeymoon.' "'That's fine,' Farrell said. "'I'm really happy for her, Bernice.' He hesitated before he asked— does he know about Lila? I mean, about what happens? Does he know? She cried. He's proud of it. He thinks it's wonderful. It's his field. That's great. That's fine. Goodbye, Bernice. I really am glad. And he was glad, and a little wistful thinking about it. The girl he was living with here had a really strange hang-up. And welcome back. Peter S. Beagle said, 
This story was written very long ago, in another world by a young man to whom the idea of equating womanhood with lycanthropy, sexual desire with blood and death and humiliation, seemed no more at the time than a casual grisly joke. I would write Lila the Werewolf today, but not for that reason, and not in that way. Dave here again, and it's interesting to me to think about what an older, maybe wiser Peter S. Beagle, writing in 2012 or whenever, would come up with if he tried to write this story again. Somewhere in Lucian's library, I bet there's a copy. Maybe one day I'll get to read it. And yeah, I realize I'm slightly messing with how Lucian's library works, but forgive me. Feedback this week is for another writer of classic stature, Gene Wolfe's Golden City Far, read by Kane Lynch. The story of a boy on his journey not only to manhood, but to a strange new world inhabiting his dreams. A world that slowly seems to be spilling into his waking life. Or is it the other way around? Feedback was actually pretty divisive on this one. It's like we ran another Kelly Link story. Among other things, the conversation turned to whether or not social studies was an actual subject in U.S. public high schools. The verdict? In some places, yes. And whether high school varsity football players would really kick your ass if they thought you shouldn't be wearing a letterman's jacket. Not sure we ever reached a verdict on that one, but I can say I have seen high school varsity athletes kick people's asses for a lot less than that, but I digress. Some listeners express those frustrations, like Patriciamos, who said, Outside of the conceit of the dream world, the main character is the least imaginative character I've seen in a long time. He's a high school boy who wants nothing other than to be a football star and have a girl all to himself, and he gets them both with the second girl fawning over him, the adoration of his teachers, and total vindication against anyone who thought him crazy. It felt to me like a story a high school kid would write about someone he disliked, with the main character dying horribly, or turning out to be crazy in the end. And that's what I was really cheering for, a dismal ending to the character who's everything and nothing more than Hollywood likes to tell us teenage boys are supposed to be. On the other hand, Discordian heaped praises on it, saying, I really enjoyed this. It's not as much of a coming-of-age story as a reawakening story. An electric paladin said, This story doesn't have a place in my heart. It is my heart. The story hit every chord, every nerve, every ounce of fear and pain and hope and nobility and strength and cowardice inside me. I don't think I've heard anything this beautiful in a long time. Well, thanks so much to all the people who dropped by to listen to it and comment on our forum. Whether you loved it or hate it, we love hearing what you think of our stories. Let us know what you thought of this week's at forum.escapeartist.net. And if you dig what we're doing, please visit podcastle.org and consider making a donation. Your money goes not to pay for our psychiatrist appointments, not for our guitar lessons, not for Wolfsbane. All noble causes to be sure, but... None quite as noble as paying our authors, so we can get your fix of the best fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't afford to donate, please blog, tweet, write a review on iTunes, or tell a friend about us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Slush Puppy Ann Leckie, Sound Producing Hound Peter Wood, and your Lycanthrope editors, Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson... 
I'd like to thank you all for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with another dog story, courtesy of Patricia Russo. Until then, Podcastle would like to remind you that we not only know, but we're proud of it, because it's our field. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Nick Hornby said, It's no good pretending that any relationship has a future. If your record collections disagree violently, or if your favorite films wouldn't even speak to each other if they met at a party.